Thank you, Mike. Let's just say a word of prayer. Lord, we need to know your word better and how you speak to us. So we, we invite you through your Holy Spirit to help us as we reflect on your word this morning. Amen. Well, as you've already gathered, it's the Sunday before Lent. It's the Sunday when we focus on the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, and uh, this morning, uh, I want you to keep the Lucan passage, the passage that Mike's just read for us, uh, open uh, because you might need to just refer to it once or twice. Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples. He becomes radiant with a divine light upon him, akin to the Moses narrative from Exodus that Susan read for us. Moses and Elijah appear and they talk with Jesus. Peter offers to make a camp for them all. Jesus reflect, rejects the offer. A heavenly cloud appears. God speaks, declaring Jesus to be his beloved son. Moses and Elijah disappear. Jesus goes down the mountain to go to Jerusalem, to the awful and awesome events that we'll mark throughout Lent and Holy Week and finally Easter. And the disciples follow him. And this story, the transfiguration, is found in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today we're looking at the Luke account of the transfiguration. And I sometimes remind you, don't I, of the significance of the context of a scripture passage. That is what comes before it or, and or what comes after it. Uh, because originally we've got to keep reminding ourselves that the Gospels were a continuous text without chapters and verses. And I want to do that today. I just want for a moment or two uh, to remind you what comes before it. Because in all three synoptic Gospels, exactly the same pattern of events occur and they help us, we should note them, they help us to see the transfiguration in a better light as it were. First of all, there's Peter's confession. Who do people say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon. And then Jesus goes on for the very first time in each gospel to start to say to them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem where he will be arrested and where he will suffer and where he will die. Surely not, Lord. No. And then Jesus says to them in each of the three Gospels, so you too must take up your cross and follow me. And then the narrative of the transfiguration. So that's where we are in the evolving of a story. And I want you to note that each of those themes who Jesus is, the start of the long walk to Jerusalem, and the challenge to go on following him, are all in this narrative of the transfiguration. It's as if Luke has captured together the three preceding things and said, now let me tell you how they fit in this story, because they're all there. 
the preceding text defines the key themes of this text. So this morning we'll focus loosely on those three things, on who Jesus is, so that in a sense we have to look up to realize who he is, to his majesty and glory. We have to look in to the depths of sacrificial suffering and love for us all. And we have to look out as Jesus comes down the mountain and says, follow me. Now, although all three synoptic gospels tell the transfiguration story, there are, as there always are, things found in one gospel that aren't found in the other gospel accounts. So something in Luke that's not in Matthew and Mark. And this morning, I want to focus on some aspects of the transfiguration as Luke tells it, some bits that are only in Luke. Take, for instance, the very first words of the gospel this morning. About eight days after. Only Luke tells us that this event happens eight days after, presumably, the declaration of who Jesus is and the first time he talks about going to Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark say six days. But the eighth day is the day after the Sabbath and is therefore the day of the resurrection, the resurrection that hasn't happened yet, but the resurrection that has happened by the time Luke's writing his gospel. So Luke says this event, the transfiguration of Jesus, is happening on the day that Christians from then until now count as the day, the day, Sunday for Christian worship. Incidentally, and this is a teaching sermon, so just bear with me a little bit. Incidentally, only Luke uses the phrase, two men. It's in verse 30, to describe Moses and Elijah. Two men, comma, Moses and Elijah, comma. And it's the same phrase that Luke uses about the day of resurrection, when two men appear by the opening of an empty grave. And incidentally, it's only Luke who tells us about the ascension of Jesus up into heaven. And as they're standing there looking at where he's gone, Luke says, and two men come to the disciples and say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? So at, in Luke's writings, two men are a kind of symbol for the great transition points of Jesus transfiguration, resurrection, ascension. And each of those three things, these cataclysmically important spiritual events, are basically saying, we just want to tell you who this person is. How fitting then that Jesus is the object of worship for the first time in the Gospels here on the mountainside when he's transfigured. The inner circle of disciples are with him and they clearly hear God's testimony as to who he is. And, and I've just got this kind of mental picture of when the cloud comes and they all hear the words of God, James and John probably nudge Peter and say, hey Peter, you were right. He is the son of the living God. 
we spend an awful lot of our time reminding ourselves that Jesus is our friend, our helper, our companion. And that's absolutely right. But on this occasion, the disciples realize that Jesus is not and is never going to be their mate. He's not merely a friend. He is Lord and he is the Son of God. It's like that old story of the priest and the politician asked what they would do if Jesus Christ walked into a room and the politician says, well, I'd stand up and I'd shake him by the hand. Says the priest, I would fall down on my knees and worship him. Because that's the difference. And we're noting it on the Mount of Transfiguration. My own call to ministry so many years ago now came with a realization something like this. I'd become a Christian as a young man and knew Jesus as Savior and friend and certainly someone I prayed to often to ask for what I wanted or often for guidance. I don't suspect I'm not alone in any of that. But when I experienced God's call to Methodist ministry, the passage of Scripture given to me at that time was from the prophet Amos who wrote this, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? And it was a time when I had to realize who Jesus was. And in a sense, I had to look up higher than I'd ever done up to that point in my early Christian experience. One of the mistakes, you see, that Peter makes when he offers to make camp for them all is that he is seeing Jesus on a par with Moses and Elijah. Why shouldn't he? He's a Jew. He's steeped in the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't got to Jerusalem yet. There hasn't been the crucifixion yet. No one's worked out an atonement theory yet. So, of course, this Jewish man, there's Moses and there's Elijah, the lawgiver and the prophet. He hasn't quite got it yet. In spite of eight days earlier making the declaration he did, Jesus is more than the lawgiver. Jesus is more than the prophet's. He is the son of the living God, and God himself says so. So, on Transfiguration Sunday, we need to ask each other, do we need to look up? Do we need a, a higher, grander realization of who Jesus Christ is? And if you're wrestling with some kind of call in your life, whatever it might be, do you need to realize afresh just who it is who is calling you? And if Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and the beloved of God the Father, what might that mean for our discipleship, our faith, our obedience, our life today? Do we need to look up and get a fresh and bigger picture of who he is.
Another thing that only Luke tells us is that Jesus and the three disciples go up the mountain to pray. It's verse 28, and Matthew and Mark give you no reason at all why they've gone up there. In Matthew, they're probably going up for an early morning walk. But this story reminds us that prayer, and perhaps the purest form of prayer of all, is not asking God for things, but is actually acknowledging God's glory, desiring and seeking to be in God's presence. That's why we chose the worship songs that we did this morning. Opening ourselves to hear what God's saying to us and seeking the strength to do what God asks. You see, prayer is not, be, it's not just what we say to God, it's what God says to us. We can only imagine what God was saying to Jesus and what Jesus was saying to God on the Mount of Transfiguration. Or perhaps we do have an idea. Perhaps Jesus is having the first of many prayer conversations about whether he really must go to Jerusalem, must go through suffering and death, must entrust his life to God on the trust of the promise of resurrection. After all, when you think about it, why should Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane be the first time that Jesus prays something like, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me. But not my will, but what your will is, be done. In fact, if we're playing around with this text this morning, Luke gives us a clue that this may well be what's going on in the prayer up that mountainside between Jesus and God the Father. Why? Because it's Luke alone who tells us that the disciples were sleepy, that they were nodding off. It's verse 32. Matthew and Mark say nothing about that. When else are we told that the disciples are nodding off instead of praying? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And Luke just does a little ripple for you. The disciples, you see, and they're not the only ones, struggled to see why Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. Why he has to hand himself over to those who increasingly hate him. Why he has to suffer and die. Lord, you've got this wrong. Get thee behind me, Satan. So they're portrayed as asleep to what they really ought to understand. Sisters and brothers, all of us suffer. Some of us experience huge trials in our lives, and for some of us, they're happening at this very time. And we don't understand it, and it doesn't seem to make sense, and we can't see the ending. And I don't want to, I can't make light of any of that. But I do want you to note this morning that the Son of the living God 
suffers unto death. And through that death comes the offer of the hope of eternal life. Not life minus our own suffering, but the hope of resurrection through and at the end of a life that includes suffering. If this story marks the beginning of Jesus' walk to Jerusalem, with all its trials and tribulations and the harrowing events of his arrest right through to his crucifixion, then we're meant to know that in the darker moments of our journey, when everything seems out of control or it's not how it was meant to be, we're meant to know who Jesus is. He is Lord. And by his obedience to death comes our eternal hope. I wonder how often those three disciples look back at what happened on that mountain and it gave them hope. So followers of Jesus don't just look up. They look into the mystery of redemptive suffering that lies at the heart of Christian faith. It's not easy. And they look inside their own lives and they place Christ there as strength and stay for this life and the next. Because by faith, in the words of Mother Julian, all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Now, all the Gospels have Peter offering to make camp for everyone and in each case, in all three Gospels, we get that comment in brackets, bless him, he didn't know what he was saying, which is the biblical way of saying what a plonker. Well, what has he got wrong? His basic mistake is trying to make static what's meant to be movable and dynamic. He wants to build a mobile home that isn't mobile. You know, those dirty great big things that are on camps. And they're advertised as mobile homes and the only time they're truly mobile is when they blow over in the wind rather than the caravans that you hitch up and take along with you and are the bane of every motorist's life on the M5 going down to Cornwall. Whenever glorious and divine things happen, we want to build a shrine or a temple. The downside is that by so doing, often incidentally and accidentally, we limit God to a place. Think of the story of the people of Israel just for a moment because we are right near the start of it when we read from ex Exodus. They're led out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They're given the law and they make that long many year journey to the promised land. 
And all that while they carried with them the Ark of the Covenant, or the tabernacle. And they celebrated and they believed that God was traveling with them every day and every mile of the journey. And then in time, Solomon built the temple. Oh, he's careful about not containing God within it, but over time, the Holy of Holies becomes associated with being the place of the presence of God. So you go to visit God rather than live and believe as if God is always with you. And Jesus is having none of it. Peter, you're a plonker. We are not building tents here. I must go to Jerusalem. But Lord, you must not get to go to Jerusalem. Ditch the tents. I'm going. You follow me. So as Jesus rejects the offer of Peter and the disciples trundle down the mountain after him, I wonder if they knew just a little better that in order to follow Jesus Christ, you can't stay still. Whether it's on a mountaintop, whether it's in the valley of suffering, just the same way that you can't live off the memory of blessings, even though they're useful to remember sometimes, or a conversion experience, however wonderful it was, but however many years ago it was. You're called to walk with him, to go where he goes. And I asked this morning whether we are still walking with him and going where he goes, or whether or not we're actually living in such a way that we want him to go where we go. And Jesus gets down the mountain and out across the valleys and onto Jerusalem, and as Luke records that journey, and it starts earlier in chapter 8, and it doesn't end the journey to Jerusalem until chapter 18. The vast bulk of Luke's gospel, the journey to Jerusalem. And we'll reach that end point at Palm Sunday when we remember Jesus actually entering Jerusalem. And between the start of chapter 8 and chapter 18, and all that time, Jesus is not just getting up each day and walking towards Jerusalem and lying down on a bed. He's stopping, he's being stopped, and he's ministering to countless people individually and in crowds. He's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's about the kingdom of God. Nowhere in those 10 chapters of Luke do you get somebody coming to Jesus and say, my daughter is at death's door, please help her. And Jesus says, push off, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So too, if we are going to follow our Lord, it will be sometimes on mountaintops, thank God for them. It will sometimes be looking into the depths of suffering. But it will certainly be moving out and walking with Jesus to minister to people humbly and in his name. 
So, on Transfiguration Sunday, look up, look in, and move out. Amen.